Okay, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 6. This morning, I just want to continue on talking about prayer. You know, I think in the modern church, we've really lost the art of prayer. I mean, we, we enjoy worship, and we enjoy supernatural encounters, and they're both all really good, and I mean, I love them. But I think there's something where we've just, I don't know, lost the actual art of communion with God. The, and, and just that place of positioning ourselves, you know, and as I said a few weeks ago, it's not so much us talking to God, because a whole lot of people do that. What really causes the world to sit up is when God talks to us. In fact, it causes us to sit up sometimes when God talks to us. But, you know, it's that, that sense of communion, that, that legitimacy of intimate, personal relationship with God where we actually converse. And, and, and I just, yeah, it's just something that God's really stirring my heart about is a, to, to learn, and it is an art form, to learn how to position ourselves to pray, to, to be in relationship and connection with God at that deep level, which it really is, you know, the secret place. I love even Jesus in the scripture we're going to read in a minute. He talks about the secret place. You know, I love that. And if you think about it with Jesus, he, he, he withdrew all the time to the secret place, to that place of intimacy. And so this morning, I just want to continue on. You know, we've got the prayer week coming up in a couple of weeks' time. It's really the first time we've done something like this as a church. And, um, you know, but it's something that is just, I believe it's actually going to be the first of many, quite frankly. Um, you know, that it's going to be not ju- it's going to be an, uh, an annual thing in the best sense of the word. But, you know, it's just not just being an annual event, but there's something that's going to be birthed out of this, I think, for people's lives. It's not just going to be us coming together to pray as a church, but I think for those who will step across the line and who will take new risks, who will actually position themselves to pray, they're going to find new levels of breakthrough and encounter for themselves personally as well. You know, see, the reality is when we get saved... We gave our lives to Jesus and we, we, we surrendered to him. We accepted the work of the cross. We become followers of Jesus. And so really what it should be now, all our life should be about following Jesus. Live as he lived. Love as he loved. Lead as he led. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to follow the example of Jesus? And one of the examples that we see constantly was this life of prayer. I mean, Jesus lived the life of prayer. If you want to really learn about prayer, simply sit down and just read any of the Gospels and you'll see it. But not only did he lead a life of prayer, but he calls us to a life of prayer. He calls us to to that place of intimacy and relationship. And not only does he call us to it, but he teaches us about it. As I say, if you read the Gospels, any of them, you will find again and again how, that he's teaching, he's modeling, he's explaining. It's just wonderful. I mean, take the Gospel of Luke. For, you know, for, I, I, for whatever reason, I think more than any other Gospel, Luke just loves to highlight the personal prayer of Jesus. He'd say things like the disciples got up early in the morning and Jesus was already withdrawn and gone somewhere. He would say that, that, um, that something big was coming up and so Jesus was away praying. Any, you know, any big decision, anything big that was going to go on that was about to happen, Jesus was up the mountain somewhere praying, seeking the Father. And so Luke consistently recounts this life of prayer that Jesus had. 
And it's interesting because when you read the Gospels, there's a couple of things that you see that the disciples already always asked for. One was that they asked for an increase in their faith. But even, I think, more than that was that they asked that they would be taught how to pray. And the question simply came from because that's how they observed Jesus. That's what he did. They watched him and they saw him pray. And so they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. That's what we want in our lives. That's what we want our lives to be about. Because, they, you see, they connected the fact with the relationship that he had with the Father was tied to prayer. That the, the, the faith that he walked in was tied to prayer. That the power that he walked in was tied to prayer. And they didn't say, Lord, teach us about miracles. They didn't say, teach us about it. He said, teach us how to pray. And he calls us to this life of prayer. You know, and the interesting thing is that not only does he call us to a life of prayer, he actually assumes that we are going to pray. <laughs> you see, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and the Holy Spirit is hungry to pray. He desires to pray. And I love it when Jesus taught. It was really subtle, but it wasn't if you pray. It wasn't like if you get around to it. In fact, in Matthew 6 here, verse 5, he's talking to us and he says, when you pray. When you pray. Not if you pray. When you pray. Don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray. Too many peas. I'll have a water, yeah. <laughs> or I'm going to be embarrassed. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they're ever going to get. Then verse 6, but you, when you pray, there it is again, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. See, his assumption that as a follower of his, that as a follower of Jesus, you're going to pray. That means that you're going to live a life of prayer. And as I said, as I believe that God is calling us to this focus of time of prayer at the end of this month. But the ultimate goal for each one of us is to actually have a life of prayer. That we would live a life like his. And this is really what Jesus assumed and called us to, to live a life of prayer. Now, I mean, one of the questions you often get asked is, why, why would you bother praying? And I think there's this amazing verse in Isaiah 65, verse 5, that says this, No one has ever heard, nor has ear ever perceived, nor has, I, nor has the eye ever seen a God like you, who works and acts on behalf of the ones who gladly wait for him. No one has ever heard, nor has ear perceived, nor I have seen a God like you. Yeah, who works and acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. See, we have a God who's moved to action by us that actually responds. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's incredible. You know, we, we, we can, I think, be so indifferent because we've been, been really inoculated by some of the things that we believe. Do you realize that there are millions who go before a God that they hope if they've done enough right things that something might happen? 
But you, you have a father. You see, that's how he defined himself about you. It wasn't us, it was him. He said, I'll tell you who I am. I'm not the God who created, well, he is the God who created the universe, but that's not, not what I'm going to be known on. I don't want to be known as the God that created the sea. I don't want to be known as God who did this or did that. I want to be known as Father. Now, I don't know about you, but that moves my heart. Father. Do you get the invitation that's in that? In that very simple word that we so often put out, oh, Father, heart of God, Father. Do we realize the invitation that is drawing you in? Father. Father. We're being drawn into a place of intimacy and relationship. You see, we have a God that moves. We actually have a God that his ear is attuned to you. So when you wake up tomorrow morning and you look at the alarm clock and realize what time it is and your first blessing is set forth and you then repent, which is your second blessing, (laughs) and you position yourself and you start grudgingly and grogly saying, God, if you do a quiet talk, God, I just, you know, oh, God, help me. (laughs) Monday, can we not, let's move to Tuesday, God, huh, please? And we start that. Do you realize that in heaven, God is saying to the angels, shh, my son, my daughter is about to, I want to listen. And he turns his ear to you. That's what you have. See, sometimes we think because God's so big and there's so many Christians and there's all that going on, that you're just one voice of many. No, 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 no. Our God, who's infinite, chooses to bring everything down to hear your voice and to hear your prayer, which may not be completely faithful and may not be particularly bold, but it moves the heart of God. I'm sure he kind of clicks, Michael. That's my boy down there. Good on you, son. Because that's how God's like. And I'm not trying to trivialize it. It's a reality. It's a reality. The fullness of heaven All its power, all its glory, everything is put in behind you. And so when you pray, the resources of heaven become focused because you're not just praying as Christian. You're praying as son, daughter, beloved, the one who's been given, what did Jesus say? All authority in heaven has been given to him. So he's given it to us. That's what you carry. And so when you come before Father and you speak, oh, his ear is attuned. And so this passage here in Isaiah says, no one has seen a God who is like this, who hears and moves because of his people. You see, and that's why we pray. That's the privilege and the honor you have when you pray. Heaven stops to hear your prayer. Think about that, that'll mess you up, but good. <laughs> when you think that through. I mean, Luke chapter 11, uh, Luke, yeah, 11, 9 says this. So, you know, how do, how do we pray? Ask and it will be given to you. This is a promise, a prayer. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which if of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Just that last bit there really is a kind of a, a bit of a dig. You know, which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? And Jesus is just giving him a little bit of a clip around there. He's saying, come on, be reasonable. If your kid comes to you and says, Daddy, can I have this? You know? I mean, let's face it, the most powerful in the world, words in the world is, Daddy, can I? Every single time they get you, don't they? You know, it moves the heart of God too. And so, and, but Jesus is saying, listen, if you are asked for something, you're, from your children, you're going to give something. So how much more would Father in heaven give you the good things. And he goes on, he says, ask and it will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock and it will be open for you. Everyone who asks, receive. Everyone who seeks, it says. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone. So why do we pray? You know, we don't pray as a last resort. We pray as our first default position. I've talked about this before, you know, so often we go to God and, and our bank account's empty and something happens to us and we go and we rush in and say, oh God, can we, oh, da, da, da. and we, we kind of come there rather than, and I mean, we don't need to build it up, I just use this illustration, rather than building up our, our bank account, if you like, in heaven, of asking and fellowshipping with him when the times are good. Because then we have that relational connection, we have that intimacy, we hear the voice, we know what's going on. So when we are in need, we move in a, from a place of faith and confidence. Why? Because we've known Father does it to us all the time. But so often in good times, you see, for, for most of us, it's, it, the good times are the most dangerous times for Christians. You know, we think persecution, and look, I, you know, I don't want to be persecuted, okay? Although they do say that Christians are like running beans, they grow best at the stake, that's a whole other thing about that one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> My email is Pete at Liberty. <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't know where that came from. And I don't want to do value. Look, I'm, I'm, yeah, I've just dug myself in a hole. I'm not getting out of quickly here. I'm stopping right there. You know, it's actually when we're best that we tend not to rely on God. The, it's not, the, the biggest enemy of Christians is, is, is best, is good, because that fills our lives up. I read a quote this week about, um, you know, and he was saying that it's not, that what fills up our lives is the apple pie, the apple pie of good things is what stops us from touching and getting hold of God. And I think it's so true, you know, we fill our lives up with so many things that can get us, that just, Make us indifferent. But we need to learn to build our lives up with God in those times and in the richness of life. Because it says, ask and you will receive. And it's so important that knock and the door will be open. You know, it's really interesting because before this, Jesus gives a story. And he tells a story and, and, and it begins with, with the, the disciples coming to him and saying, can you teach us to pray? And so before Jesus even talks about that, he starts talking about a story. And um, he then gives him the prayer, and then he says, um, suppose you have a friend 
and you go to him at midnight and say, this is in Luke 9 as well, verse 5, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, I love that, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. You see, the story is based on Jewish culture. When someone arrives at your house, it would be absolutely um, impossible for you not to be a good host. Even if they arrive unannounced, one of the key things is to be a good host. And so you provide them with a meal and make sure that they are well fed and, and everything's okay before you do anything else. So this friend arrives at this person's house and he's got nothing. But it's still the middle of the night, but that doesn't matter because he's got to provide food. So he thinks, what am I going to do? I know. So he goes to the next door neighbours and he bangs on the door. And he bangs and he bangs, and finally he wakes the neighbor up. He says, I want some bread. The neighbor says, no, get lost. We're not getting up for you. What does he do? He goes, oh, well, no, he keeps banging, and he keeps banging, and he keeps banging until the end. The, the um, neighbor gets up and says, here, take the bread, have it, and gives it to him. And what Jesus is saying is exactly like that, that, that the the. Uh, consistency, the persistency of that man, got it, he got an answer for it. And that directly after that is when Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find. In fact, a better translation of those scriptures is found in the New Living Translation. And it says, I tell you this, keep on asking and you will receive. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened. Keep on asking, seeking and knocking. And you know, many of the of us don't see our prayers answered because we simply don't keep at it. We've become sort of, in a sense, so religiousized with our prayers, we say them once and that's it. Now, look, I know God can answer prayers in one prayer. I can give you testimony after testimony in my own personal life of that, seeing that. But there's also a sense of consistency and persistency that brings, that is connected to the revelation of the Father and Jesus' teaching on prayer. And I think part of it, it's like what I said before, um, that as much as anything, prayer is about us being transformed. And so there's that sense in the consistent, persistent place of pushing into God for something. What happens is that we begin, and we're going to Father for that, we get an increased revelation of the Father. Remember I've said this, that Jesus doesn't hide things from us, he hides things for us that it's in that place of us seeking and pushing in that we actually find not only the answer, but we ourselves are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And it keeps on happening. And so we need to understand that. You know, and, it, and, and it's a reality, isn't it? I mean, the most persistent people on the planet are kids. You know what I'm saying? Aren't they? You know, I mean, anyone who's got kids, oh, yeah, man. They just keep going at you and going at you and going at you. And in the end, they said, sort of, I don't care. Look, take the chocolates, here's the car keys, and you can have mine. Just leave me alone. <laughs> Not that my children have ever been like that. <clears throat> you know, you see, it's part of it is, is that persistency actually brings and moves the heart of God. Because in that, you, you, and it's not about working harder. 
That's the thing with being persistent in prayer. It's not about, man, if I you know, pray for five hours a day, I'm going to get something from God because I've done that. It's actually about the persistency of prayer. It's actually about relational connection. It's actually about connecting with the heart of God. It's about understanding his nature and the nature of what it's all about. It's positioning our hearts for transformation. You know, there's consistency and persistency and focus. You know, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep knocking. I'm going to keep seeking. I'm going to keep going and not losing heart when we pray. Because, you know, when you can easily lose heart when you're praying, when you're not consistent. Consistency is huge. To be able to just go after the same thing again and again until I get breakthrough. Staying on the same spot. You know, staying on the same spot and just praying for breakthrough. When I was younger, when I was about 12, 13, my um, brother-in-law and sister used to own a timber mill. And we used to work in it. So I used to go out and do holiday work with them in the forestry, making battens and all sorts of different things. But I remember one of the first times we went out, and I had my cousin with me, and um, Jeff, and he came out with us. And part of it is we were there, and we were meant to be splitting some firewood to take back to the house. And um, so Brian set us up, my brother-in-law set us up, and he gave us an axe, and he said to Jeff, you know, if you hit that one spot three times, the log, the log will split. And he took one and just, you know, wham, bang, split. That's how you do it. And then he said to me, come with me, and we're going to go over and get some other stuff. So we went off, and I don't know, we're gone for about half an hour. Now, when we got back, there's Jeff, still on the same log, and <laughs> every time he hit, he missed. Well, he didn't miss the log, he hit the log, but he missed the same spot. And it was like he was beginning to make that stuff that you have for rats, you know, in the bottom, because he certainly wasn't making kindling, I'll tell you that. He just, because why? He was consistently missing the one spot. And so again, Brian just picked it up, put the log in, just said, bang, three times the log split. You see, consistency, hitting the same spot again and again and again in prayer brings breakthrough. And we need to understand that. Just hitting that thing. I remember Bill Johnson was telling a story of when he was first uh, moved to Bethel and he was preaching and I think probably for the first six months he preached and then someone came to him and said, listen, I've been listening to all your prayers, uh, your sermons and I've been counting them up. And he said, I want to tell you that, that 95% of your prayers have been on, on revival. And he wasn't saying that as a positive thing <laughs> either. And, and Bill's response was, oh man, I'm, I had no idea. Well, believe me, I'm going to be changing that and making it 100%. Yeah. Persistency. And look, today they have a, a revival culture. But why? If you know Bill, I mean, he is one of the most focused, persistent, consistent people. Randy Clark, you know, good friend of our house here. He preaches on healing all the time. And he's focused on that and he goes after that. And he sees breakthrough, incredible breakthrough, metal and bodies disappearing, all sorts of amazing things. We all know what Randy's like. But you talk, and the neat thing for me is when I talk to him about things, whether it's in the public forum or privately, as we're chatting, he's still as excited today about the smallest healing as he is as a big one. Because in his consistency, he's kept his heart focused on the one thing, and that's the goodness of God and that God will be glorified. And that's so important that we understand that. You know, one of the cool things I think about. An analogy that, that God talks about for us is that we're the light of the world. You know, the, the, the picture for believers is light. And I think that's really neat, you know, because let's face it, we all love sunlight. 
and, um, <laughs> and, and beauty and warmth and, and all that, don't we? We love to bask in it, and it's great. But, you know, in terms of light, that's kind of very general light. But there's also light that is really focused and intentional, and it's called a laser. And, you know, a laser, because it's so focused, because it's so concentrated, cuts through things. And um, so just uh, this week I was thinking, well, what makes a laser? You know, if we want to have our prayers lasered, what makes a, a laser so significant? And there's just a couple of three, or three things that I found that I thought were really interesting about a laser, what makes it different from normal light. The first thing is it's made up of one color or wavelength. Scientists call it monochromatic. In other words, the focus is singular. The focus is singular. And, and, you know, I think that that's one of the cool things that we want to, I mean, there will be a number of things that we pray for in that prayer week, week of prayer, but our focus is going to be singular. It's to see breakthrough. It's going to be intentional, and it's going to be important. We put time aside, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, putting, and it's only an hour a night, but putting that time aside where we can come together and focus with intentionality on seeing what God wants to do for our house and, and for those in, uh, in the community here and seeing breakthrough, you know? And because you know what the reality is, I think that we are probably the most distracted generation in history, you know? I mean, I'm not, it just, it's just a fact. I mean, with Facebook and Instagram and, you know, all, the, all those sorts of things, you know, everybody suddenly put their Facebook away. <laughs> I know because I get Facebook pictures when I get home of things that happen in church on Sunday. You know, we'll, <laughs> I do. Hey, I've had texts when I've been in church. Well, I've got texts from people in church. I've also got texts from people who should have been in church, but that's another story. You know, but there is, we are distracted. We're a distracted generation. But there's something about prayer that brings focus to it. And, and, you know, it's actually freeing. When you make up your mind, when you, you decide you're going to put some time aside to seek God, I'm going to bring my stuff into focus right now, it's so freeing. Because we become intentionality. It's monochromatic. David says in Psalm 86, give me an undivided heart and I'll praise your name. An undivided heart, one focus, one thing. Secondly, about laser beams, wavelengths are all in phase. In other words, all the waves are waving in the same time. That's like a well-hearsed audience. You know when you have a, a wave at a rugby match and everybody's hands go up and down at the same time? It's like that. That's what the wavelength is like in a, in a, with a laser. So it means all the crests, the high points, and all the low points, uh, the troughs, are at the same time, are all lined up. And it says that that makes the light wave coherent. The third thing is that the light, while well, all light, you know, one light and flash bulbs and all those kinds of things go in all directions, laser beams travel in one direction and can be concentrated on one tiny spot. The word for that, the scientific word for that is collimated. Yeah, you can drop that in the conversation tomorrow. So, you know, I, I think this is a profound picture for corporate prayer. Like the laser light is monochromatic, coherent, and culminated, all the energy is focused on a small point of intense power. And the focus light is cutting and welding. And we can focus our prayer in the same way. We can have that kind of consistency and focus as we come together to pray. 
And it's something that can be so exciting, both individually and corporately. The other thing that we want to do while we're um, having those four days of prayer is fasting. Fasting. <laughs> now, as I said to you, and I told you the story a few weeks ago when I first got saved, I'll relate the story again if you weren't here, you know, I got saved, I picked up the book, I was on the floor of a bus, I picked up the Gospel of Matthew and I started reading it, and you get all the genealogies, what I call the phone books, you know, all the listing of so-and-so beget, so-and-so who beget, so-and-so beget. I didn't know what beget was, so that was an interesting illumination when I found that one out as well. But the, I got down, and then the next chapter, it begins with Jesus fasted. And I turned to the woman, girl next to me, Joy, and I said, what does fasting mean? What is fasting? She said, I don't know. So I had this image of Jesus going really fast around the desert. And then when I found out, as I said the other day, I think my definition was way better than what I, I, when I did find out what fasting was all about. But you know, Jesus is just the way Jesus calls us to fast. He also calls us, uh, sorry, to pray. He also calls us to fast. You know that? Matthew 6.16. So before we're looking at Matthew 6, um, 6 now Matthew 6.16, he says, moreover, when you fast. Jesus is not saying if you fast. He's saying when you fast. Not if it's not inconvenient, not if you just think about it, but he says, when you fast. Moreover, when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they um, try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that it's only reward they'll ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. Man, I love that. I love that. Jesus is saying that we should have a life of prayer and fasting. That it's right throughout, you know, that Jesus prayed and fasted. He expects us to pray and fast. You know, the, the New Testament church prayed and fasted. Acts 13 verse 2 says, While you were worshipping the, the Lord, yeah, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. Acts 14 23, when Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in the early church and with prayer and fasting committed to them the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So you have, not only do you have Jesus praying and calling us to pray and fast, but you also had the New Testament church in the book of Acts praying and fasting. Even more than that, do you know that throughout history, prayer and fasting has been such an important part of church? Listen to this. This is from the book, The Coming Revival. Down through the centuries, godly people who have done mighty things for the Lord have testified to the necessity of prayer with fasting. John Wesley, who shook the world for God during the Great Awakening, which gave a rise to a Methodist church toward the end of the 18th century, is a representative of such a great spiritual leader. John, now listen to this. John Wesley so believed this power that he urged every Methodist to fast and pray every Wednesday and Friday. He felt so strongly about fasting in those two days that he refused to ordain Anyone, that's make them a minister. He forced, refused to ordain anyone who would not agree to do this. Pretty amazing, isn't it? You know, sometimes we, we love to read about these heroes of faith, but we don't realize the actual price they paid. You know, and we live in New Covenant. We live in this place where we're not striving toward earning anything. But, you know, there is always that sense that if you want to see victory in spiritual realms, it does cost something. It's so important. Bill Bright goes on, the roll call of other Christian leaders who determined to make prayer with fasting a part of their lives reads like a hall of fame. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Jonathan Edwards, Matthew Henry, Charles Finney, Andrew Murray, D. 
Lloyd Martin-Jones, and many more. See, Jesus has called us to a life of prayer and fasting. Now, you may be here this morning and think, well, what, what am I talking about, Trent? What are you talking about with fasting? I want to give you a definition. Fasting is voluntarily going without food or any other regularly enjoyed good gift from God for the sake of some spiritual purpose. In other words, it's laying aside something that we usually enjoy for the purpose of focusing on God. And so what I'm asking you to consider is in those four days that we're doing prayer and fasting, that we're doing the prayer, that you would consider maybe fasting with us. Fasting being going without food or some other regularly enjoyed gift, good gift from God for the sake of some spiritual purpose. So what am I talking about there? I mentioned food. You know, I want to be practical about this. There are various fasts. Uh, historically, the fast used to be just abstinence of water and often just drinking water, uh, sorry, abstinence of food and just drinking water or juice. And some people would say, if you don't do 40 days, well, that's not a real fast because that's a historical one. But don't worry, we're not going to go there this year, okay? <laughs> I want to break you in gently. But what I want to encourage you to do is consider laying aside something good in your life for those days that we're praying and focusing. Because you see, there can be various types of food. Like, for instance, there can be an absence of food. And, and as I said, the, the full one is a juice or water fast, where all you have is water or juice for the, well, it'll be the four days, primarily of, the, of what we're doing for the prayer thing. Now, I have to tell you that the first three to four days is always the hardest days in a fast. Believe it or not, after that, it does get actually a lot easier. And, and, you know, sort of by day 10 to 15, you actually don't even, almost in, in a sense, realise that you're fasting because you've, your body's set up into a, a particular equilibrium. So fasting from just four and going on juice or water for those four days will be hard, but still you may wish to do it and that would be great. But then there are other types of you can do as well. There's a Daniel fast. A Daniel fast is based out of the book of Daniel where they just, where remember they brought all the rich foods of Babylon to Daniel and Daniel said, no, don't give us that. Just give us vegetables and fruit and that's what we'll eat. And if we aren't as healthy as your guys by the end of it, then you know we'll eat your food. That's called a Daniel fast. In other words, it's just going for those four days where you would just eat fruit and or vegetables. So that's another type of fast. You might just wish to go without a meal a day, go without breakfast. or lunch. Now, if you're going to do something like that, don't say you're fasting from the meal you don't normally have, okay? If you don't have breakfast and you can't say, well, I'm fasting from my breakfast, because you never have breakfast. <laughs> really? And the reason I and actually no, the reason I say that is because my grand my mother had this lovely old lady who was a Catholic lady, and um, apparently on a Friday they went without certain things at one stage. And this uh, friend of my mother's used to always go without chocolate, but my mother said she never eats chocolate because she gets sick. So this was her fast before the Pope. She always went to the Pope or to the priest. Oh, I'm giving up chocolate. She never ate chocolate. So, <laughs> so you know, so if you're going to give up something, do actually give it up. Snacking could just be something like that. Coffee. Ooh, yeah. I knew that'd get a reaction in this place. Yes, people do live without coffee. <laughs> well, for four days, anyhow. <laughs> could be sugar or sweets or salt, even. Just something, something that you actually enjoy putting it aside. But then there are other kinds of fasts that might actually be quite interesting to give up. What about social media? 
What about social media? <laughs> Sorry, guys. Electronics, TV or movies or video games. See, there are a number of things that we can give up. And what is it? It's, it's, not, kind of, it's not making our bodies or, or us making miserable. It's actually removing something that's good so we can focus on something that's better. Make sense? Right now, our young, some of our young adults are doing a 40-day negativity fast. 30 days. Yeah, 30 day. 30. What happened to the other 10? <laughs> I gave them to me, thanks. 30-day negativity fast. And what that is, and look, you may think, oh man, that's me, I can do that. Tell you what, that is a challenge. I'm not saying anything negative about anyone for 30 days can be a big challenge, a lot harder than what many of us think. And actually not thinking negative about it is a whole other level. <laughs> but it can happen. And so positioning yourself, you know, it's, it's becoming solution focused. Speaking about things in the right way. I mean, that, that's something that can be done. In fact, I think outside in our decoration sheets up on our uh, information desk, we've got more information about the 40-day but <laughs> there. But I just want to encourage you, you know, to, to think about these things, to weigh it up. Because you see, I think that we're in for a really exciting time. I think we're in for some breakthrough. So I want to go after things like the out, more of an outpouring of its presence in those four days. I want to go through seeing the church awaken. I want to pray for our nation. We've got elections coming up in about four weeks' time. We need to pray for that. You know, I want to pray for fresh encounters, for breakthrough, for more miracles. For, for not only for this house, but for this city, for this country. And I believe that God wants to do something. And, and prayer and fasting, it's not the only way, but I think it's something that can really help us to see breakthrough. I, I have so much anticipation in my spirit for this time of prayer that we're about to come into. And I think it's just going to be so cool and so awesome to see what God does for us. You know, it's impossible. You know, our dictum here, it's impossible to pray and not something for something not to happen. I read a quote this week and someone said, have you ever thought why Jesus never taught us what to do when nothing happens when we pray? In other words, you know, he didn't teach us how to respond when nothing happens when we pray because we should fully expect something to always happen when we pray. And so we're just going to see and believe God for some impossible things.